This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. And this is the Goop Podcast, where we bring together thought leaders, scientists, healers, creatives, and seekers. I'm so grateful to be able to interview these bright minds and share their incredible wisdom with you. And I especially love listening to the conversations that are led by my brilliant co-host and friend, Erica Chitty. Erica is the CEO and co-founder of Loom, and she's been a part of the Goop family since the beginning days. We believe that simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. I'll let Erica fill you in on her guest today. Today, I'm excited to be talking to Liz Goldwyn. She's an author, a sex educator, and she's a good friend of mine. She's the founder of The Sex Ed, which is an online platform and podcast dedicated to sex education. And her latest book is called Sex, Health, and Consciousness. Liz joins me today to talk about how to harness our pleasure potential. We talk about intentional celibacy as a tool for self-discovery, mutual masturbation, and how to navigate and become literate in porn. Toward the end of the conversation, toward the end of the conversation, Liz shares what we can all learn from the kink community and a meditation for connecting mind, body, and sexuality. Okay, let's get to my chat with Liz Goldwyn. I'm so happy and feel very tender about chatting with you today. I think this book is so from your heart and from your lived experience. And as someone who knows you and loves you as a friend, I feel really excited to just peel back some of the layers and dive into what's present in this book. How did it feel to go through the process of writing it. Sex, Health, and Consciousness is definitely the most personal book I've ever written. I did not expect to tell so many stories about myself that are uncomfortable and awkward and embarrassing and, you know, really expose my flaws. But that just ended up being what was best for the story to serve a bigger picture. It was definitely coming face to face with a lot of my 
traumas, uh, my shortcomings. I don't believe in regrets because I think there's always a lesson to be learned. But it was a really healing book to write. Really helped me move through, I would say, like 10 years of therapy <laughs> in 10 months. Even though it's really not a book about me, but you know, it's really about the reader, how it makes them reflect on their own life and hopefully feel a little less alone. Because when it comes to sex, I think a lot of us walk around having insecurities or fear or shame or, you know, thinking we're not normal, that word normal, which I deconstruct, as you know, in the book. So in the book you wrote, I never got better at separating sex from love. Can you talk about what happens when we try to mold our sexual relationship to meet our committed romantic relationships? Do you feel like sex and love should be separate? I don't think that there's a a right or a wrong way. I think it's about finding what works for you. And I think for me, working for so many years in a space of sex positivity, sex research, being around like a high concentrate of people who are in kink, fetish, sort of non-vanilla, non-heteronormative spaces, I was always an anomaly. People had a lot more experience than I did, even though I would be, you know, right they're in there in situations that maybe people would, might be uncomfortable with from the outside. I wasn't necessarily participating in them, but had a lack of judgment around, you know, whatever it is that you're doing as long as it's consensual. So I think that I compared myself to that and sort of wished that I could be a sex, like the sexually liberated woman that, you know, could have casual sex. So for me personally, I can't, I'm so sensitive. I don't let people wear shoes in my house. I get freaked out in crowds. So the idea of a lot of casual sexual encounters, I just can't do that. For some people, it's great. They can totally separate that feeling of their heart from their genitals. I cannot. So I don't think it's right to put my judgment for me for what's right for me on anyone else. But it took me a while, especially because, you know, in the area that you and I work in, it's just a higher concentration of non-monogamous relationships. I'm really curious about kind of what we learn when we're young. And I think it's also a very common trope, I would say, in the sex positive community that in order to learn about sex, we need to have more of it. Why do you think celibacy is another tool for self-discovery? Well, you know what I learned about Betty Dodson? who was featured with Gwyneth on on the Netflix show, who is an incredible sex historian researcher, led groups of women to masturbate together in the 70s and 80s and introduced them to the Hitachi magic wand vibrator. She actually went for a five-year celibate period in order to better harness her sex energy and control it. So for me personally, I don't think of sex or sex energy as an act that needs to include penetration or an orgasm. I think of sex or sex energy as life force, prana, mana, chi, my creative energy. And, you know, many great artists, athletes, et cetera, will refrain from sex when they're trying to complete a big project or compete in a, in a game because there is there's sort of a power to that, right? To, to retain that strength, retain that stamina. So I think that celibacy, self-imposed celibacy as a choice, we're not talking about incels here. And also the idea of celibacy can include masturbation, kissing, touching, licking, spanking. It's a personal thing. For me, 
that idea just doesn't include penetration for me personally. You can interpret it however you want. But taking a break from sex, I think, can not only be a way to harness that power for yourself and begin to shape it and understand it and understand how to harness it and direct it. It can also be a way to determine whether you're using sex as a way to fill a void of loneliness, of anxiety, of low self-worth, of a lack of self-esteem, or whether you're using it to connect with another person truly, whether you're using it to raise your vibration, to sound hippy-dippy, acid-trippy. I think for me personally, it's been very powerful at different moments in my life to take that period to really look at how I'm using sex. Because I think culturally, most of us, and I recognize this from a very early age, since I was a child of the adults around me, are ruled by sex rather than understanding our sex force, rather than it being a positive aspect, positive, creative, fulfilling, spiritual consciousness raising aspect of ourselves, not just our sexuality, but really our whole embodied selves. It becomes this thing that we're making decisions based around. I'm really aligned with this feeling of celibacy as a way to conserve energy and not necessarily as a rejection of a desire for intimacy. You know, as you were speaking, it made me think a lot about you know, working on Loom right now and we're getting ready to launch our app. And, you know, even when I'm fundraising, you know, anything that is highly stimulating requires a lot of outward energy. I find myself less interested in sex because I know how much sex takes out of me because I really don't approach sex lightly. I'm extremely sexual and it's very connected for me. And I find it's not, it's like, I'm not the kind of person who can have a really strong work day, work out like whatever Pilates gym. And then like, also like have like a crazy fucking session that night. Like those three things are not going to happen in the same day for me because they all, they all require a lot of potency. And so sometimes sex can take a backseat. And when I say sex too, I mean penetrative as well, similar to you in that, you know, like hugging, cuddling, kissing, sensuality, physicality are still very much on the table, but anything kind of more intensive does tend to recede when I have a, a big deadline or something really important to get over the line. So I, I really just appreciate you highlighting that because a lot of people hear celibacy and they think constriction. They don't really understand that there is a capacity for there to be expansion in in that decision. And let's use the word intentionality because this is not a sort of a new age concept or again, it's not sort of an incel concept. If we look back at ancient Eastern texts and, and religious texts and the origins of Tantra, we're coming up against classes of people, societies who believed that holding on to ejaculation or semen, if we're talking about from that perspective, that was life force. So you wanted to retain as much life force as possible. So these are, these are not new ideas. I'm just in my book, sort of reframing the idea of let's look at sex as intentional. Let's look at the way we use sex as, an, as intentional, because I don't think we're harnessing even a quarter 
of our pleasure potential, the way that we're thinking about, talking about, and using sex now, 2022, in, in America and most of the world. I think we need to really, you know, reframe our whole dialogue, which I know, obviously, you're working on as well in your work with Loom. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Well, let's back up a little bit and talk about your background for a minute. Why did you become interested in sex education and creating the sex ed, which for those that might not be aware is is an online platform that's and a podcast that's dedicated to sex health and consciousness education? What what brought you in to that world? I have been in this space literally since I was 13 years old. My first job was as a paid intern at Planned Parenthood at a clinic in Santa Monica, Los Angeles, organizing their media library, answering the phones, which often held anti-abortionist callers threatening the safety of our clinic and the staff. My mom was on the board of Planned Parenthood at the time and vice president in Los Angeles. So she very early on, I think I she took me to my first pro-choice rally when I was around nine years old, went to you know clinics and held our arms locked together to barricade against the anti-abortionist picketing outside so women could enter the clinic safely, often for just routine breast exams or STD testing, birth control, not abortions. As you know, Planned Parenthood services, abortions have traditionally been a minor part of what they offer. So from a very early age, I was politicized by my mother in terms of reproductive health. And on the other end of it, my dad was a total playboy. And I used to steal his Playboy magazines. I have four brothers. I was aware of the male gaze very early. And to me, you know, it was it was such an extreme thing because on one side I had an idea that I needed to look or behave a certain way with seeing extreme representations for me at that age of pornography. And on the other hand, I have my mom giving me Colette and Simone de Beauvoir to read. So that was sort of my first foray, then working for Planned Parenthood. And back then, you know, there was no Google that you could look up, like, can you get pregnant from anal sex or how to give a good blowjob or, you know, all these questions that like kids were asking at school when I was 13, 14. So I knew that there needed to one day be a centralized place where you can go and get information and you could ask questions anonymously. So fast forward, I bought the domain names for the sex ed in 2008. It took me a while to launch it because 
America is not traditionally very open to talking about this subject. I had I had written two books previous to this one, one on the last generation of American burlesque queens and the advent of striptease, and another one that's historical fiction, sporting guide set in the world of vice and sex work in LA in the 1890s. So both of those books, I'd spend a lot of time on, you know, in some ways, some people might say a darker side of sex, even though it was celebrating women whose stories were at the time, you know, lost to history because they were denigrated for what they did, either stripping or sex work. This book to me represents like a healing aspect or a light aspect of those studies. So in a way, my work started out with where, where sex is culturally, which is when we tend to talk about sex, it focuses on don't get pregnant, don't have an STD and trauma. You know, I think I reached a place where I just felt like the whole system was so broken and it wasn't about fighting to have a comprehensive sex education in American schools, which I, I honestly don't think will happen in our lifetime. I think it's about completely tearing the system down and giving people tools to redefine what their own sex education is and how that is going to involve reprogramming, reparenting the ways in which we learned ourselves about our sexuality, about our bodies, and this idea of what is the norm that we're measuring ourselves against when it comes to sex. What kinds of conversations do you tend to have with people around masturbation and self-pleasure? I mean, a lot of people weren't, including myself, were not ever told or taught that it was okay to masturbate or, you know, given tools. I didn't get my first vibrator until I was getting a divorce. Actually, a friend gave me one. So, and I got married quite young. I met my ex-husband at 18. So, you know, I, again, as I said, I don't believe in regrets, but I do feel like we should be teaching people to have agency and understand pleasure for themselves over their own body before they're giving someone else that agency to tell them what pleasures them, if that makes sense. Because I think so much of our sexual exploration happens quite young and it tends to happen in secret and dark without communication. So a lot of times when I hear people talking about masturbation now, even, you know, men, for example, in their forties, straight guys will tell me, will feel ashamed about masturbating in front of their partner. For example, there's still so much shame locked up in this idea of self-pleasuring where I think, I mean, it's free. <laughs> it's a free tool for you to get off. It's amazing. Meditation, masturbation should be, you know, touted with the same zeal as any other mindfulness practice. You know, it's so interesting that piece around the shame and masturbation experience, because I really feel that that is true. You know, I am a huge fan of mutual masturbation. I, I always have been, I'd say since I kind of lost my virginity. And I think that has a lot to do with my general curiosity to see what the person I'm with considers pleasurable. And it's, it's like enjoyable to see them pleasure themselves is enjoyable to see them make themselves come. It just, to me, it seems like such a baseline <laughs> way of like figuring things out about your partner. But there is a lot of tightness around that. And I, you know, when I used to teach in-person childbirth education at Loom and actually just throughout my career, you know, as a doula, when I was still practicing before I retired, I would 
suggest it to a lot of couples that were pregnant because oftentimes, you know, penetrative sex just wasn't really on the table, whether vaginal or anal, and couples were looking for ways to stay connected. And it would definitely be something that I would recommend, but some couples would be like, oh, I don't know about that. And, and I, I always would say, you've seen everything else. It's really, it's really not that far from what it is that you've been doing. But I think, again, like you just said, we haven't been taught that it's okay. There's so much religiosity and dogma kind of trapped in and around that experience. And so it's just, I think it's helpful to just name it and acknowledge it and yeah, and just create some space around it. I have exercises in sex, health, and consciousness that help break the ice around mutual masturbation or masturbating in front of a partner because I think it's super sexy to show someone how you like to get off. And it's really totally. informative to understand how they like to do that you know, as well. It helps you become a better lover. But it's also important to have that practice for yourself, to take the time to take yourself on a date and eroticize yourself and slow down, you know, and really like lovingly put lotion or oil on yourself after a shower or bath and light some candles and set the mood and eroticize the situation as if you were trying to seduce a lover, but the lover that you're trying to seduce is yourself. Because ultimately, if you feel uncomfortable about yourself, about your body, it's going to inhibit you from having more pleasure with a partner. You know, we do get so many questions at the sex ed about people saying, I'm worried I'm not masturbating correctly, you know, or I'm uncomfortable with showing a partner because I think I look stupid or I'm laying on my stomach or, you know, or however you, however you get off. And again, where did we first form this idea that there was a correct way to masturbate? that there was like one perfect person in the universe who's a, you know, Olympic medal winning masturbator. And we should be following what they do because we all have different physiologies. Our sexuality is as unique as our fingerprint. So what gets me off is going to be completely different than what gets you off. A hundred percent. I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, that really makes me want to ask about porn and porn literacy. Cause for me, the porn that I really love and happily pay for shows a range of, of of archetypes in terms of, you know, bodies, ways of masturbating. One of my favorite sites is called I Feel Myself, and it's basically a lot of POV and self-shot masturbation videos. And you're just seeing one person masturbate. And I really enjoy that kind of content because it it just creates like more permission and everybody does it differently. Everyone like, you know, you know, touches their clitoris differently or places their fingers inside of themselves different. It's just it's all very interesting. And like obviously I really had to like scour the internet to find porn that resonated with me. And I consider myself to be porn literate, let's say. But I'm curious to find out from you, you know, how do you define porn literacy? How is technology kind of changing the way we see and feel about sex? I have a lot of friends who are adult stars. You know, we feature a lot of adult stars on our platform and podcast. I think anyone working in the field that has over 10,000 hours of experience is an expert. So I think it's important to hear from someone like Asa Akira, who's a mom of multiple AVN, which is adult video network. It's like the Oscars of porn award winner and has been dubbed the queen of anal 
I think people would want to hear from her about preparation for anal sex, for example, or about what happens before the cameras start rolling. What are the conversations around boundaries and consent? Porn literacy, I think, is is essential for anyone learning about themselves or sexuality for the last, you know, 20 years because porn is ubiquitous. Streaming porn is it's like we're scrolling through Instagram, you know, or or swiping on Amazon or getting an Uber or Postmates. We don't even think about it anymore. And if we don't have tools to engage critically with it the way that we would with what we're consuming in terms of our diet or any other media, then it again begins to rule us and we create these very unrealistic expectations of what our body should look like, what desire looks like, how squirting, we should all squirt, that we should take practices like, for example, choking. I get a lot of questions, particularly from parents uh, or therapists wanting to talk to like Gen Z patients who want to do choking in the bedroom because they've learned it from porn. And like number one tip, you need to face someone if you're going to engage in high risk activity, because you need to see if they're turning blue. You don't want to be choking someone from behind. So these are all things. These are movies. These are fantasies. This isn't real life. These are paid performers. I think porn creates a lot of unrealistic expectations and performance anxiety for men. The rise in streaming porn has been directly correlated to the rise in ejaculatory disorder an erectile dysfunction. And it's no wonder, you know, you can't just like get it up and keep it hard for the way that <laughs> just like you can't, you know, jump out of an airplane and like land on your feet, like the rock or Tom Cruise. So porn literacy is literally having the, you know, critical skills and emotional intelligence around deciphering what you're watching. And then again, understanding, is it ruling you? Are you only able to get off by watching porn? Can you alter that stimuli a little bit? Can it be that sometimes you're listening to erotica or sometimes you're using your imagination? Sometimes you're looking at pictures. Can it, can it be that you're getting turned on by lying naked on your bed and a window's open and a cool breeze is coming in? Can you get turned on using your breath? What are other ways to vary up our stimuli? And I think porn literacy needs to be something that parents are aware of. And also, you know, hopefully they're going to talk to their kids about it because unfortunately most children between the ages of eight and 13 is when they're first going to be exposed to streaming porn. And I know when I was a kid, like I said, I have four brothers. I had a dad whose playboys I would steal. And, you know, I, the first time I saw a porn, I was pretty young and it was the VHS tape that was in my house. And I was really freaked out. I was too embarrassed to ask anyone about it. But it was, I mean, I had just sort of been like vaguely told where babies came from. And then all of a sudden I'm seeing like a group sex orgy scene and I was really confused and freaked out. And I'm hearing a lot these days from a lot of parents about that are dealing with their kids, like nine, nine-year-old kids, eight, nine-year-old kids being in like group settings with other kids and someone, you know, someone's older brother or older sister or someone at school said this word porn to them and they look it up on the internet. And if nobody wants to talk to them about it or like explain things, you know, they're going to think that this is what sex should be like. This is what we're trying to emulate. And, you know, for me, even my age now and working in this space, I still find there's so many things I have to unpack learned experiences from childhood around sexuality around pornography, 
around orienting my sexuality in the male gaze that I learned from no one talking to me about porn. That conversation about porn as as a parent is so important. And I had a very similar experience to you. I think the first time I watched porn, I found my dad's like VHS tape somewhere in the house. And, you know, and then from there, my interest in that continued to develop. But it, I think there is something to be said about being guided there. But I think that guidance has to do with first ne- negotiating your own shame and discomfort around sex. And so it's it really is this like, there's like this chain reaction or this, this like, cycle we're in where the shame kind of stops the systems changing, you know, because being able to have those conversations is not easy. No, it's not easy. And I also want to point out that I'm not suggesting you just introduce porn at the idea of porn to your children. Absolutely not. You know, people ask a lot, I'm sure you as well, when should, when it was age appropriate sex education. Mm-hmm. And I think that as soon as your kids start, you know, asking you questions or, or, you know, touching themselves or make, you know, talking about their genitals and you do it in a way that again, does not shame them is just encouraging and guiding and open with them hopefully. And yes, it does require us all to confront a lot of our own shame and judgment and, and kind of tap into those early childhood memories, you know, of, of how we were maybe taught to be ashamed. And also before we blame our parents or grandparents, et cetera, they were taught those same things. This broken system and this culture of shame goes back so far. So it's really, I think, up to us in this generation here and now to dismantle the system and begin to build new ways of talking about this, you know, outside of the education system, because unfortunately, again, in this country, I don't know that we're going to have porn literacy as part of comprehensive sex education. It's like people want to ignore anything that they have trouble with, anything they aren't cool with. And pornography does make people uncomfortable. Pornography can also be a great tool for people who are wanting to explore their sexuality or wanting to see new things or wanting to spice things up in a long-term relationship. But, you know, again, just like food has labels on the back of it, so we know what's going into our body, we, we need to know those same things about the content we're consuming. I really agree with that. A couple of minutes ago, you talked about boundaries. And so you have a chapter in the book called Boundaries, Bondage, and Healing, where you talk about aftercare. Can you talk about what aftercare is and if it's something that we need to be talking about in our relationships or if it's something that's really needed in order to have a safe experience around anything to do with bondage or kink? hundred percent. I, I will explain aftercare. And I also think aftercare is essential. There's a lot of things that we can learn from the kicking fetish community that should be applied to the most vanilla heteronormative and actually casual hookups, particularly since sex has become so transactional and many people use apps to connect with other people, whether it's for dating or, or sex or, or love, you know, hopefully I think a lot of people are on apps looking for love and it ends up being casual sex. So this concept of aftercare is basically caring for each party after a scene has occurred. And a scene is what you would call a sexual encounter. 
kink fetish space, which not, doesn't necessarily include penetration. Often it doesn't. That could include being tied up, whipped, flogged, blindfolded, all gagged, any number of things. But it's it's intense to play in that space. So before that scene occurs, there's communication and dialogue around consent and boundaries and what that sandbox, what the what it looks like, what tools are going to be used, where people's edges are, how far they can be pushed. And another thing that's really good to talk about in advance is aftercare. So that is what do I need and what do you need to recalibrate after we've just shared this experience together, which alters our state of consciousness. So we know that at the moment of orgasm, you have an altered state of consciousness, right? You don't feel the same way before and after an orgasm. You've got hormones rushing through your system. You may be breathless. You could feel a little woozy. You might feel amazing. You could feel super high. It's an altered state of consciousness that can also be known in the kinks fetish space as subspace or that moment of transcendence post play. So in order to, you know, get in your car and drive away or go operate heavy machinery, you need to come back to baseline. This is where aftercare comes in. So it might be getting you water, petting you, cuddling you, wiping you down, you know, rocking you gently. It could be any of any number of these things. And if you're someone who needs a high degree of cuddling, for example, and I'm someone who feels really smothered post-sex by, by that close contact, like I need, I need to sort of step away and come back into my own body. It could be really confusing if we don't discuss that in advance because I could feel really smothered and you could feel abandoned or rejected. So if we discuss in advance, which each of us need to recalibrate after we've just consensually shared this heavy experience, that's aftercare. And it's, I think, a great concept that we should be talking about in all sorts of relationships. The most, whether you're having, you know, missionary position sex or whether you're hooking up with you know, five different people a week. I think it's totally okay for us to ask for what you need post-sex. That doesn't mean relationship status. What are we doing? What is this? It could literally mean, I really need you to check in with me 24 hours after I just sucked your dick, <laughs> let you lick my, <laughs> you know, because that's really, really intimate. That's super intimate. And the funny thing is, People are willing to do the most intimate things with each other, but they're not willing to actually verbalize <laughs> these things or what they need. So not allowed. I know it could feel awkward or scary at first, but once you get in the practice of it, you feel a lot safer and you're going to be able to let your freak flag fly in the bedroom because the more sort of boundaries and, and needs that you name within reason, I don't think it's unreasonable to expect to ask for someone to just check in with you 24 hours later, if that's what you need. I think that that's totally fair and makes so much sense to me. And, you know, <laughs> especially if you are sleeping with a number of people, I think having that baseline understanding of what's going to feel comfortable and that you're not necessarily trying to, you know, find out if the relationship's going to the next level. You're just literally trying to say, these are the things that are going to make me feel safe. I think is just a really powerful practice. And even when you're in a committed relationship too, I think, you know, I love talking about sex after it happens. 
and talking about what felt good, what didn't feel good, and and leaning into it that way. And it's, I think for a lot of partners, when I've you know I haven't I haven't had that many partners, but you know when I'm in a long term relationship, at least starting to get into it, people are always kind of taken aback by my interest in talking about sex after it <laughs> happens. And a couple days later, I'm like, so like, did you like it when I when I went down on you? Did you like it when I did this? You and I are so cut from <laughs> from the same cloth. I am just insatiably curious about how my partner feels. And interestingly, like I, you know, I, you know, my partner and I, you know, we were having sex recently and we've just started to incorporate toys more. And I really like toys not to be used on me, but I really like toys to use on my partner. And I take a very like, mechanic slash like scientific approach to using them. And again, in order for that to feel mutually pleasurable, there has to be a lot of discussion and consent. Do you like that? Does that feel good? Do you want to use that again? Is that the right size? Is it too big, too small? And again, it's just like, I feel like being in a gay relationship, there's just a lot more like bandwidth for that kind of discussion. But I love it. I love talking about it. And I think the aftercare piece is just as important setting that up on the other side. But I think just unpacking your sexual experience with your partner, especially when it's gone well, too. I think sometimes we're like, it was so good. We don't need to talk about it. But like, I'm like, it was so good. Let's talk about it. <laughs> like, can we, you know? I want to make make a suggestion and also tell you a story. Please. A suggestion is if you feel like any of this is awkward or uncomfortable with naming your needs or your boundaries or talking about it, I, I actually think we need to develop more intimacy in our platonic relationships, in our friendships. And it's a really good way to practice these things. Like, uh, for example, Eric and I are friends, right? And it's good in a friendship to be able to name your needs as you start to get better at doing this because it may be uncomfortable for you to say to a friend, for example, I really need to know that what I tell you stays between us or, you know, it would really make me feel good if, if you checked in after I have this, repeat that if you check in after I have this, you know, surgery, whatever it is, you know, that you need in a friendship to feel like you're taken care of. Those are important to get in the practice of naming because it will help you have these conversations with romantic or sexual partners. So that's sort of one tip that I think can also be uncomfortable sometimes in friendships. If people start asking you, you know, to name your boundaries or name what you like, you may not be used to doing that, right? We're not necessarily in the practice of it, but the more that we can, we can get into that flow, I think the easier it gets. And then I also wanted to tell you, Erica, just in terms of being the sort of nerdy sex researcher, I think a lot of people look at our look at our jobs and think, oh my God, you must be in heat all day long. But literally, you know, it's research. I once took a boyfriend to the AVN convention in Vegas. I, I write about it in the book, which is, you know, essentially like the biggest adult and consumer convention in, in the U.S. with lots of toys and all the adult stars. And I'm in there in the booths being like, what's your top selling dildo? What's the market share on this? Who's the, you know, <laughs> I'm there collecting data. You know, I just want to know numbers and analytics. And my boyfriend was horrified. He was like, wait, this isn't sexy at all. This is like a cold, this is like an air conditioned <laughs> carpeted convention center. And then I'm like, yeah, what did you, this is a business. 
you know, of course it's not sexy. So I think it's funny sometimes because, you know, again, like so much of it, of course I have my sexuality, but then when faced with things, other things, I definitely can put on my like research intellectual hat and be like, Hmm, well, it seems to me that this type of bondage is very useful in healing trauma. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I so resonate with, (laughs) with that. And even my questions to my partner about the feel of, you know, the toy, actually, interestingly, the toy that we used the other night, we were using Goop's double-sided wand vibrator. And I didn't tell her that's what I was using, but afterwards I was like, did you like it? And she's like, yeah, I really like the, the feel of it. And I was like, it's this. And like, now I have like more research on, on that toy. <laughs> now you have more data. We don't recommend anything on the sex ed actually, unless, you know, one of our team members has tried it and liked it. I think it's so important to have that kind of data, but sometimes it can definitely, I think, piss partners off. My last partner, we had a situation that we had, I tried to have a conversation with him about his shame and Catholic guilt around masturbating in front of me. I was like, you know, it's so great. It makes me so high. I really want to know how you get yourself off. And, you know, a lot of times, like I'm ready to go there and like get into the, get into the depth of it. And I have to realize that not everyone is at that place. So even with friends, it's so interesting. Cause there'll be things where I'm like, Oh, you're just blocking yourself. It's so easy. Just look at it like this. And I'll realize that like, it's going to take them maybe like, you know, seven to eight steps to get to that place of, of comfort. Yeah, totally. I want to close out our conversation leaning back into consciousness. Can you talk a little bit about how meditation can help support a deeper sexual connection, better orgasming? Because I feel like you've definitely had that experience and it's something you talk about. Sure. I'd love to maybe introduce a practice that that we could just do right now together. That will hopefully, in a somatic way, help listeners ground into the connection between mind, body, and sexuality. So if you're driving, I would say, don't close your eyes. (laughs) Keep your eyes on the road and, you know, maybe listen to this part when you're parked. If you're not driving, if you can close your eyes and if you're sitting down or lying down, Just take a minute, if you're sitting down to feel your feet on the floor, to relax your palms, maybe put one hand on your heart, your right hand on your heart and your left hand on your belly and take a deep breath in and really let your belly expand into your palm. Don't worry about looking cute. You wanna feel the flesh, that beautiful flesh of your belly in your hand as you inhale and then as you exhale, softly let go. Again, don't suck it in. Another deep breath in and then out. And now if your listeners are not familiar with your pelvic floor muscles, that is the muscles that you constrict when you're trying to stop the flow of urine. doesn't matter whether you have a penis or a vagina, you have pelvic floor muscles. So feel what that feels like to constrict those muscles just for a moment. I'm doing it right now. Okay. So you've located those muscles. So let's take a deep breath in while we squeeze those muscles gently. So 
And I'm taking that deep breath in as though I'm sucking in air through a straw. And I'm still keeping my pelvic floor muscles squeezed. And now I'm going to exhale very slowly out. And at the end of the exhale, I'm going to release those muscles. Well, let's try that again on your own a couple times. So that's a that's an inhale slow as though you're sucking in a straw while you're lightly squeezing your muscles. And then a long, slow exhale with releasing your muscles at the end. After you've had a chance to do a couple of these deep breaths, I want to ask you to focus your attention on your genitals and notice how they're feeling. Are they feeling numb, itchy, wet, dry, tingly? Whatever adjective that you choose, it's all okay. The first step is beginning to link your attention to your genitals. You may not do that over the course of the day. You may not think about what your genitals are doing unless you're in a doctor's office having a gynecological exam or a prostate exam or having sex, or even during sex, you may not be linking your breath and your consciousness to your genitals. So simply beginning to notice and connect your breath, slow down, focus attention on your genitals, for me, is the first step to a better relationship with your sexual health and to linking consciousness with sexuality. Thanks for listening to today's conversation with Liz Goldwyn. You can learn more about her work at thesexed.com and pick up a copy of her book, Sex, Health, and Consciousness. Thanks again for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to the Goop Podcast.